honestly, it's like the time in my life when I feel like the least amount of adult. I just am somehow unable to actually meal prep. Oh, I always I've been have these sucking. grand ideas. I'm like, ooh, I'm going to buy like three bags of spinach. I'm going to buy a whole orchard's worth of zucchini. And then it sits in my fridge and I'm like, I'm not touching that. I don't know who bought that. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I've also been really sucking with the meal prep. But isn't it funny how you buy all these healthy food, you don't let yourself buy all like the snacks and shit. And then literally that's all you want. Like you get home from work and you just want to cry. You're like, I don't want to eat another baked chicken breast and veggies. Literally oh eat that I'm more so than anything. <laughs> I'm so tired of baked chicken and veggies. Anyways. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we suck at meal prep. Haven't been doing very well at it. Well, we have a jam-packed episode for y'all today. So I'm just going to go ahead and truck right along and jump into Patreon. You've heard it before. Our Patreon is awesome. Our Patreon family is even more awesome. And if you want to be part of the awesome, how many times can I say awesome in one sentence? One more time. Who knows? Awesome. But you should check out our Patreon. We do murder minis and bottle talks. That is now uh, weekly. So every Thursday there is something new that is Patreon exclusive for you to listen to. We also have different reward tiers ranging from shoutouts in our episodes, shoutouts on our social media, all the way to you being a director of your own episode. So head over to patreon.com slash blood and wine podcast. Check it out and become a member of the family, but not the cult family. Different thing. Yeah, you, kind of the same thing. But you don't want to be a part of that one. You, you really don't. And after you check out our Patreon, be sure to hop on over to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on and hit that subscribe button. You'll be notified of all of our new episodes every Tuesday. Um, and so you'll never miss a single one. So hit subscribe. So as Tyler mentioned, this is, we've got a lot for you guys in this episode. And this week's topic is, honestly, it sounds like it's a phone-in one, but I promise you guys it's not. I picked the topic this week, we're doing creepy murders. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, I do understand that most murders are creepy, but there are some that really take it to the next level, where it is just something so bizarre, so grotesque, so out of the ordinary, that I would definitely define that as really creepy, and one that sticks with you, that you really can't shake. So, we're doing creepy murders, and I know it's going to be a freaking doozy. Yeah, I think it's interesting that At some level, you know, like you mentioned, every murder is creepy because murder itself is creepy. But some just take it to this whole different level. I mean, I know my case is just, like, weird and creepy is the only way I can think to describe it other than, like, Mm -hmm. horrible and gruesome. It's weird. I don't know. Yeah, and I will say, I don't know for you, but for mine, I just want to put the warning out there. This one is graphic. Yeah, I will plus one that warning. Yeah, so just be prepared and get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to jump into these cases. But before we do that, let's talk about our wine. 
So this week I am doing another of my first leaf wines. Again, I got six of them in a box, so I'm just going through them. They're all phenomenal. And so I want to make sure and share them with you guys. So this week I'm doing the 2017 Idlewright Rosé of Pinot Noir from Mendocino County, California. And Mendocino County has the ideal climate for wine grapes with greater day-night temperature variation than a lot of the other surrounding areas. So the hot days serve to ripen the grapes and the really cool nights are going to preserve their acidity, which results in fruit that retains a strong but a very refined character. And it's in the northernmost outpost of California winemaking, and this area has innovated planting at altitudes in the hills above the fog line. So I know a lot of the times when I think about California, I think of like beaches and fun and, and like LA. Yeah. But that's wrong side of California. Th- yeah, that's not what the majority of that state is about. It is with the hills, the trees, the fog, the cold. Um so California is also just, like, so much more country than I realized. Like, it's the, I think, the number one agriculture-producing state in the United States. I mean, to be fair, they have a lot of agricultural land. I mean, like, I mean it's yeah. a big space. Although Texas is as well, so. Yeah, but I never, I never think about, like, oh, California equals farms and stuff. Farms and cows. But then... If you take Highway 99 straight up, you will smell the farms and the cows. (laughs) Dear Lord. They're there. (laughs) Um, Central Valley is, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's farmland. It smells like cows. (laughs) I mean, to be completely fair, we grew up in Oklahoma and uh, the Texas Panhandle and Texas Plains. I'm used to the smell of manure. I know, I'm like, I think my life just smells like cows. Maybe it's me. Maybe at this point, (laughs) I just smell like cows. Okay. Anywho. So, Idlewright was crafted by Olga Crawford, and she is the first Greek winemaker to become master of wine, which is considered, you know, the crowning achievement. So, she's a master of sommelier. And Olga was born and raised in a winemaking family in Greece, where she earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry before she came over to California, and she got degrees in viticulture and oneology. So this rosé, I'm really excited about it. I don't know if I've ever had a rosé that's made from a Pinot Noir grape, um, but this one is very beautiful. It's got this light pink color, so showing that those grape skins were only in contact with the wine for a very short period of time, and it has some balanced acidity. And choosing Pinot Noir grapes for rosé, it was a really good choice. It has an ethereal mix of fruit and earth with an incredibly light body. So this wine is complex and light with a very savory finish. Those secondary notes that are involved are rose petal, mushroom, and stone, which make it very ideal for most occasions. Again, with having this fruit and more of this earth together, it honestly doesn't sound like a rosé. It sounds more like a red wine, and that's because of this Pinot Noir grape. And I did a Pinot Noir a couple episodes ago, and I remember talking about how I always forget it's not as fruity as I imagine it is. So this wine is fantastic on its own, as to me all rosés are, but it's really good with grilled fish, ratatouille, or roasted meats. And 
Although we've said points aren't what make the wine, this one did get 92 points. It's won a gold medal and two silver medals. And it retails for $21, but again, with First Leaf, $15. I will say one thing about the points is I feel like it's a good indicator, because it might not tell the whole story, but if a wine has a lot of points, it's probably going to be a good one. Maybe you... You know, maybe it's not your palate, but if you like Pinot Noir Rosés, a 92-point Pinot Noir Rosé is going to be great. If you don't like Pinot Noir Rosés, then that's whatever. Yeah, then it's not going to be your cup of tea. Well, the wine that I chose for today is actually a really interesting one. I was at the store earlier today and saw it. It had one of those little, you know, um, sometimes at the... In the wine aisle, certain wines will have, like, just a little note card that, like, I don't oh, know, yeah. show the number of points it has or, like, you know, give a little blurb about the wine. And generally, in my mind, I'm like, oh, those are good wines. So I saw this one, had the little note thing, and I was like, ooh, this sounds fun. It's the 2014 Vecchia Cantina Rosso Toscano Campaltino. And Italian, all so the Italian words. Yeah, it's it's an Italian wine, surprisingly. Um, and it's a blend of 90% Sangiovese and 10% Ganaiolo grape. So I got this bottle for $10, but... Ooh, nice. But as I found out through my research, you can find it for closer to $6 at most places. Oh. So store next to me is a bit expensive. And this is actually a case of one I was really excited. And then once I started researching, I was like, ooh, okay. Actually, I don't know. So we're going to be on a journey together. Because it actually is one that's a 2.8 out of 5 on Vivino. But I still stand by that taste is very subjective. So I'm going to give it a chance. Um, it's a young wine with strong fruity notes and a full but delicate taste, according to the bottle. And a couple of the reviews I read said that it's a deep red with an orange-colored hue, aromas of stone fruit, plum, chocolate, and a slight hint of mandarin. The taste is slightly fruity with medium acid. It's very light-bodied, very light tannin, dry, Definitely not one that you pair with a steak or meat in general, but it does pair great with pasta. Oh. To me, it sounds like it'd be in the Chianti family, which Sangioveses remind me of Chiantis. I love Sangioveses. But I'm going to give it a chance. Also, it's 2014, which... Nice. I feel like the older a wine is, the better it is. I, I mean, it just means that's the year the grapes were picked. Because not all wines age well. Like, there are a lot of that's white true. wines, for example. You don't really want to drink an older one because it might not taste very good. Fair. That's fair. I mean, I guess when you think of, like, the aged, mature wines, it's nine times out of ten a red. Or it's a sparkling. Yeah, it could be. So, I poured my glass, and... This is super pink. Like, you know yeah. how you know how a lot of rosés have a like almost an orange tint or they're so light. This one is not it's not pink as in like a blush or a white zen. It's not that kind of pink. This is pink like 
baby girl pink. Like, look at this, Ty. Wow. You see how it's not orange? Yeah. Another thing I read in the reviews is that the nose of mine is very alcoholic. Is it? And I get that. (laughs) I get that. I see what they mean. It didn't smell bad, though. It smells like wine. Either way, I'm ready. I need a glass of wine. So. Same. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. This one is not as sweet as some of the rosés I've had. It absolutely has more of a dry quality. And I am getting that very savory finish. It's interesting. I'm used to a little bit more sweetness, but like, because on the nose, it smells like strawberry, honestly, is what I was smelling. Mm. But I don't taste that at all. It's more of like this floral, savory, like earthy. It's very, very good. Very, I mean, I, I can tell this is a Pinot Noir grape. Like, it's very different than a lot of the rosés I've had. I recommend it for, like, a change. Nice. So, this one, I think the review got it right on the nose. It's very light-bodied, very light tannin. It's a very quick wine. It's one of those that you swallow and it's gone. And it's very dry, which I kind of always assume red wines that aren't specifically sweet are going to be dry. But this one specifically... I think it's because it's very light on the tannins and also dry. It's almost like not watery. I was about to ask you if it was watery. You were saying how quick it was. To me, that sounds like, oh, it's just, okay, it's red water. That's... Yeah, it's a very quick... I mean, it's not a bad wine. It's very... It's a very easy drinking wine, that's for sure. Well, that's good. But... I definitely see what they mean by if you tried to pair this with a good steak, the food would just completely overpower it. Yeah. But a nice, light garlic and olive oil pasta dish would probably be really good with this. That actually sounds delicious. Every time you mention food, I'm like, yes, I want that right now. Agreed. (laughs) This rosé, I will say, before I jump into my case, I would say this is a rosé for a red wine drinker because it doesn't have any of that fruity... It's dry. You taste more of that like earthy mushroom. It's it's a good one. I think this is a good transition for a red wine drinker because I know a lot of red wine drinkers, cough, cough, our mom, have problems with rosé just because it's so unfamiliar and so different. And when you're used to these super heavy full-bodied reds, a rosé is not necessarily what you gravitate towards. Well, with that, we have our wine. We have our topic. I want to hear about what your case is. I really don't think you want to. Are you prepared? I don't think you are. Okay. Well, I mean, with that (laughs) intro, no. Okay. So with that, this is Blood Wine signing off. Bye, you guys. Bye. No. So for this week's episode, I picked one that I've been wanting to do for a while. And as soon as I tell you what it is, you'll know immediately why I wanted to do this if you've listened to episode one. But this one is insanely creepy. I did serial killer Dennis Nielsen, who is also known as the British Jeffrey Dahmer. If you don't know about him, you're about to know a lot more than you want to. But again, I just want to reiterate, this is a graphic warning for this case. The sources I used were All That's Interesting and Wikipedia. I also watched the documentary Encountering Evil on Netflix. It's 
it's one where like every episode has multiple different murders. I believe this is season one, episode one, they covered Dennis Nielsen. So I watched that as well. And um, so that's going to be intertwined to my case as well. Dennis Nelson was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Fraserburg, Aberdeenshire. So he's from Scotland. <laughs> he was the second of three children born to Elizabeth White and Olav Mangus Mokshim. Tyler, you probably know how to pronounce that name better. He's Norwegian. Olav Magnus Mokshim. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you were close. I was close. So... Dennis's parents did not have a good marriage. They divorced in 1948, so they had not been married very long. Um, but her parents, Elizabeth's parents, were totally okay with this. They did not like Olaf at all. And after the divorce, his father just pretty much left the family completely. So he didn't really grow right. up with his dad. Nilsson was quiet, yet a very adventurous child, and some of his earliest childhood memories were of things like family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mom and siblings, his grandparents' pious lifestyle, and long countryside walks with his maternal grandfather, who he was really close with. However, by 1951, Nielsen's grandfather's health was in decline. On October 31st, 1951, he died of a heart attack when he was only 62 years old. Nielsen didn't know his grandfather had passed away when his mom asked if he wanted to come, you know, see the open casket. He didn't he didn't realize that was a dead body. He was like 6 years old at this point. And so in this moment, when he sees his grandfather dead, his mom says he's sleeping, he gets this weird, this is like when this began, where he associated love with death. Because his grandfather was someone he loved more than anyone else in the world, and he didn't understand yeah. death and that he was gone. And it was also that moment of shock when it's like, oh, he's dead? Like, he had no idea. So yeah. th that is what Nielsen has said. He later in life writes a book. Um, but that's what he claimed as to be one of these catalyst moments in his life. So in the years following his grandfather's death, Nielsen became quieter and even more reserved. And he would just like stand alone at the harbor and watch boats. At home, he never really participated in family activities. He repelled any attempts by his adult family members to be affectionate at all towards him. He just wasn't interested. And he started to really resent his family because of this. And he felt that his siblings were receiving more attention than he was. When he started puberty, that's when Nielsen discovered that he was homosexual, which initially he was very confused by. He was very shamed by this. And so he kept it hidden from his family and his friends. When he was 14 years old, he joined the army cadet force, um, viewing the British army as this potential avenue to just get out of his rural origins. He was tired of this small town he grew up in, and this is was his way out. The scary thing is, so far, because, I mean, he's the British Jeffrey Dahmer. We can have ideas about what's to come. Yeah. But so far, I'm like, yeah. I mean, this is everyone's story. It's not remarkable in any kind of uniqueness. No, it's not remarkable. It's very normal. I mean, there were some other things I didn't go into that were inappropriate family things that he did, supposedly. But it's a relatively normal lifestyle. 
When he was in the army, he started drinking a lot. And when he did that, he would fantasize about his partners being completely passive, unconscious, or even dead. And this was sprung by a moment he had with another of his army mates where they both like got really drunk and blacked out. Nothing happened. But when Nilsson knew that he could have done something, like he woke up and his friend was still like completely passed out. He was extremely turned on by that. Like this person is completely like the lack of control. His fantasies would gradually um, start to evolve and they'd incorporate a near death experience he had with a cab driver dead bodies that he saw in the army, and also imagery from a 19th century oil painting entitled The Raft of Medusa. And this is by oh. the French romantic painter Theodore Jericho, which this is one that I know I studied like in high school and definitely in college. Um, but again, I studied art history, but I know it's a very, That's not surprising. <laughs> it's a very familiar painting. If you look it up, you guys, the raft of Medusa, you've probably seen it, but in this painting, there's an old man who's holding a limp nude body of a dead youth as he sits aside the dismembered body of another young male. So it's a very destructive painting, but for Nielsen, this really turned him on, and this was exactly the type of thing that he was looking for. After he left the army, in 1972, he decided to join the Metropolitan Police and moved to London in December. He began the training course and completed it in April 1973. So when he was living in London, you know, he doesn't really know anyone there. He starts drinking alone in the evenings. And during the summer and autumn of 1973, he began frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men. He, he viewed these encounters as soul-destroying and oh. a vain search for inner peace as he was really looking for a lasting relationship. He was someone who wanted to be in love. He wanted a partner. He didn't want this fleeting um, lifestyle of picking up random people. That's not what I he mean, wanted. Fair. Again, he's not sounding too... I mean, besides all of the like really liking his mates to be super passive... Again, like yeah. wanting a lasting relationship, that's not an abnormal thought. However... Yeah, not being fulfilled <laughs> by hookups... Get it. Yes. Like, yeah, and he just unfortunately takes this into a very different direction. In that same year, 1973, he actually quit the police force, and he became a security guard and then a civil servant. He was helping people oh. find jobs. In November 1975, Nielsen encountered a 20-year-old man named David Galachan, and he was being threatened outside of a pub by two other men. And so Nilsson intervened and broke up this altercation and took David home. The two of them spent the night drinking and talking. And this is when Nilsson learned that David had recently moved to London from Weston Supermare. He was also homosexual, unemployed, and was actually living in a hostel at the time. That next morning, both men agreed to live together in a larger residence, and Nilsson immediately started looking for a place. I mean... Well, that's quick, but let's be real. Us gays move quick. We do. It's a kind of our thing. Well, and this, but, I was living in a hostel. Nielsen had essentially saved him. Again, it's, I want it to, your story to be like, and they got married and lived happily ever after. The end. Because like so far, I'm like, oh, this could be a really sweet story. And I just know it's not. Oh, not at all. 
Um, so a few days later, they viewed a vacant ground floor flat at 195 Melrose Avenue, which was located in the Cricklewood neighborhood, which was where Nielsen had already been living. They loved it and they decided to move in. However, before they moved in, Nielsen negotiated a deal with the landlord, so he and David had exclusive use of the garden at the rear of the property. Within a year, their superficial relationship, it started to really strain. They were already sleeping in separate beds, they were fighting, and they both began to bring home casual sexual partners. In May 1977, they had a really heated argument, and after that, Nielsen demanded David leave the residence. So their fake romance was real quick. So by late 1978, Nielsen was again living a solitary existence, and he developed an increasing conviction that he was just unfit to live with, and that no one wanted to live with him or be with him. And so throughout 1978, he devoted an ever-increasing amount of time and effort to work, and he spent most of his evenings drinking and listening to music. On December 30th, 1978, so, you know, almost New Year's Eve, Nielsen was at a pub where he ran into a young kid named Stephen Holmes, who was 14 years old. Oh my god, that's young. Extremely young. So, Holmes was at the Cricklewood Arms pub. So... Holmes had unsuccessfully attempted to purchase alcohol, again, because he's like 14. You're clearly a child. So Nielsen, he'd been at home drinking all day, and he had decided at all costs, you know, he had to get out of the house, he had to seek company. He invited Holmes to his house with the promise of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music. Nielsen thought he was about like 17 years old. At Nielsen's home, Nielsen and Holmes drank heavily before the two of them fell asleep. And that next morning, Nielsen woke up and he found Holmes asleep on his bed. He then got really scared that Holmes was going to leave if he if he woke up. And so Nielsen decided he wanted him to stay even if he didn't want to. So he strangled oh. him with a necktie. And, oh! And then drowned him in a bucket of water. What the fuck? The boy's body would then be moved underneath the floorboards in Nielsen's flat and left there for eight months until he finally burned it in the backyard. So a quote from Nielsen about this murder, he later said, I eased him into his new bed underneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed his body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put them down there. You know, because he had been down there for so long that rigor mortis had worn off. It would take until 2006 for Holmes to actually be identified. So that was murder number one. On October 11th, 1979... Nielsen attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho. He met Andrew at St. Martin's Lane Pub and lured him to his flat on the promise of sex. Nielsen attempted to strangle Ho, but Ho managed to flee from the named Kenneth Ockenden, who had been on a tour of England visiting relatives, and they both drank at a West End pub. Nielsen offered to show Kenneth several London landmarks, and Kenneth was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm just visiting. I'm new. Nielsen invited Kenneth to his house, 
with the promise of a meal and more drinks. They stopped at an off-license on the way and purchased whiskey, rum, and beer, and Kenneth insisted on sharing the bill. He didn't want Nielsen to buy all of that stuff. You know, Nielsen was just being so nice. Yeah. When they were at his apartment, after drinks, Nielsen strangled him with the cord of his headphones as Kenneth listened to music. Nielsen then poured himself a half glass of rum and continued to listen to music on the same headphones that he had just strangled Kenneth with. Oh my god. The next day, Nielsen purchased a Polaroid camera and took pictures of Kenneth's body in various suggestive positions. He then laid Kenneth's corpse spread eagle above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours before he wrapped the body in plastic bags and put it underneath the floorboards of his apartment. On about like four different occasions over the following fortnight, Nielsen took his body out from underneath the floorboards, seated him in the armchair alongside him, and the two of them would watch television and drink alcohol. Nielsen killed his third victim, 16-year-old Martin Duffy, on May 17, 1980. Duffy was actually a catering student from Birkenhead who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge. So his parents had no idea where their son was. And for four days, Duffy had slept rough. Um, He was at the Euston Railway Station before Nielsen encountered him and... Duffy was exhausted and hungry, and Nielsen's like, well, come over to my apartment for a meal and a bed. Like, you need to sleep in a real bed. And so Duffy happily accepted. After Duffy had fallen asleep, though, Nielsen fashioned a ligature around his neck and then simultaneously sat on Duffy's chest and tightened the ligature with a great force. He held the grip until Duffy became unconscious he then dragged him into the kitchen and drowned him in the sink before bathing with the body. He would repeatedly kiss the body. Um, he complimented and caressed Duffy, among a few other things. For two days, Duffy's body was stowed in a cupboard before Nielsen noted like there were signs of bloating. It was like, oh, time to put him underneath the floorboards. I will say this, you know, he's the British Jeffrey Dahmer. And I get it. He's a creepy mix of, like, Jeffrey Dahmer and Gacy. Yes. And that, ugh. Well, and I I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it actually is going to get even worse. God. This is not the worst of it. So following Duffy's murder, Nielsen began to kill with increasing frequency. And before the end of 1980, he killed another five victims and attempted to murder one other. And only one of those five victims that Nielsen murdered... 26-year-old William David Sutherland has ever been identified. The rest are Uh. unidentified victims. So inevitably, (laughs) he started to accumulate a lot of bodies underneath his floorboards, and the bodies are attracting insects, and they're creating a very foul odor. And and this was especially strong through the summer months. So (laughs) on occasions when Nielsen would you know, disinter the the victims, take them out from underneath the floorboards. He would note that the bodies were covered in maggots and some of the victims' heads had maggots crawling out of the eye sockets and the mouths. Like, literally, this is hell. Um, But not, not for him, but for literally everyone else. He would put, like, deodorants under the floorboards and he would spray insecticide about twice a day. 
But this odor of decay and the presence of flies, it remains. Like, obviously, there are dead bodies, multiple dead bodies underneath his floorboards. And yeah. so in late 1980, Nielsen removed the bodies of each victim he'd killed since December 1978. Two years worth of bodies underneath there, which means two years worth of decay. He dissected them on the floor, removing the internal organs, thinking that that was what was making the smell, and he saved some of their skin and bones. He then took the body parts and burned them in a bonfire in the garden of his flat, and to disguise the obvious smell of burning flesh of these six dissected bodies on the pyre, he put an old tire at the very top. What is even creepier is that some of the kids in the neighborhood would go and dance around the bonfire, having no idea what was actually burning. Oh my god. They were just hanging out by the bonfire. That is just some creepy children of the corn shit. I mean, they don't know it's creepy children of the corn shit, because they're just kids dancing, but children dancing around this, like, murder victim funeral pyre? I know. No. Can you think about when those kids were older and found out, like, what that was? Like, that would fuck me up irreparably. Yeah. (laughs) Like, forever. So... The bonfire was eventually reduced to ashes and cinders, and so Nielsen went over with his rake to search for debris and any, you know, recognizable bones that may still be there. And there actually was a skull that was intact, so he smashed it into pieces with the rake. On January 4th, 1981, Nielsen encountered an unidentified man who he later described as an 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scot at this pub called Golden Lion in Soho. He lured this guy to his apartment, again, with the promise of partaking in more drinking. They were actually going to have a drinking contest. So after Nielsen and this victim had consumed several beverages, Nielsen strangled him with a tie and subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. By April of 1981, Nielsen had killed two more unidentified victims. God damn, I hate... How many of these you keep saying unidentified victim? I know. The last victim that he murdered at the Melrose Avenue apartment was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow. Nielsen discovered him slumped against a wall outside his home on September 17th. And he was sick and Nielsen took him to the hospital. And then that next day, Barlow was released from the hospital and he went to Nielsen's home to say thank you. Nielsen invited him in, and they had a meal together. They started drinking rum and coke, which rum and coke was Nielsen's drink of choice. That's what he loved to have. Rum and coke's gross. Rum and coke is gross. Um, Then the two of them fell asleep on Nielsen's sofa. Nielsen manually strangled Barlow as he slept before stowing the body beneath the kitchen sink the following morning. So by mid-1981... His landlord decided to renovate the garden flat, and Nielsen was forced to move. He moved into an attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens in the Munswell Hill District of North London on October 5th, 1981. The day before he left his Melrose property, he burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims that he had killed, and this was his third and final bonfire in the garden behind the flat. Oh my god, he cut that timeline very close. The day before Mm -hmm. he's burning the victims? Jesus. Yeah, and 
Again, he put a tire on top of it so he couldn't smell the burning flesh. This new place that Nielsen moved into, he didn't have a garden. So he's like up in the attic and he actually couldn't put any of the bodies under the floorboard either. So he was forced to get a little- Yeah, under the floorboard is like- the living room below you. <laughs> well, this caused him to have to be a little bit more creative with his disposal methods. In March 1982, Nielsen encountered a 23-year-old named Josh Howlett, and he lured him to his apartment, killed him in the same fashion as the rest of his victims. Strangulation. Two months later, in May, Nielsen encountered Carl Stoder, who was 21 years old. They met at a pub, and Nielsen invited him over. At the flat, Stoder consumed more alcohol and then fell asleep in an open sleeping bag. And then he woke up later, finding himself being strangled with Nielsen loudly whispering, Stay still. Stoder- Who the fuck? Sorry, one thing. If you go to someone's house to drink and there's just an open sleeping bag on the floor, leave. Just go. Like, you know, that's not a good sign anywhere. Especially if they live in an attic. They're like, here, take a nap in this sleeping bag on the floor. Just go. Definitely not a safe situation, but if you have had as much to drink as I am sure Nielsen provided, you probably don't know any better. So, Stoder initially believed that Nielsen was trying to free him from, like, the zip of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. Again, he's being strangled, so he becomes unconscious. He then hears water running before he realized he was being immersed in the water and that Nielsen was attempting to drown him. After briefly succeeding in raising his head above the water, Stoder like gasps when he says, no more, please, no more, before Nielsen again submerged his head. Nielsen thought he had killed Stoder and just seated the body in his armchair. However, that's when Nielsen realized that there was this tiny bit of life that Stoder was still clinging onto. And so he started rubbing Stoder's limbs and his heart to just increase circulation and covered his body in blankets and laid him on the bed. So Stoder regained consciousness and Nielsen embraced him and he explained to Stoder that he'd almost strangled himself in the zip of the sleeping bag and that, you know, Nielsen had resuscitated him. And over the following two days, Stoder was repeatedly lapsing in and out of consciousness. But when he finally gained enough strength, he asked Nielsen about his recollections of being strangled and being immersed in the water. Nielsen again says, you know, you got caught in the zipper of the sleeping bag, you had a nightmare, and you were in shock, so I placed you into the cold water. Nielsen then led Stoder to a nearby railway station where he informed him that he hoped he might meet him again and he bade him farewell. So, um, Stoder survived. Wow. I wonder if he took, you know, him surviving the strangling and drowning as a sign or... I don't know. And, however, by June, he was back to his old habits. He encountered 27-year-old Graham Allen, brought him home, and strangled him. Alan's body was left in the bathtub for three days before Nielsen began to start dissecting him, and he did this on his kitchen floor. On January 26th, 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Following his ritual of strangulation and then bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body on his bed, 
applied a talcum powder and then arranged three different mirrors around the bed before he himself lied down naked next to the dead body. Several hours later, after laying next to him, he turned Stephen's head towards him. He started kissing the body on the forehead and saying, Good night, Stephen. And then he fell asleep. As Nielsen did with a lot of his other victims, Sinclair's body was dissected, and these various dismembered parts were wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either his wardrobe, a tea chest, or in a drawer located beneath the bathtub. So at his new apartment, that's what he's doing with the bodies. He can't put them under the floor, so he's cutting them up and putting them in bags and just stowing them in places. Like you do, like, junk in your closet. At this point, Nielsen needed a means to dispose of the body parts. Like, they're starting to pile up. He's (laughs) running out of places to put them. And he assumed that the flesh would either deteriorate or be flushed far enough into the sewers that it would never be found. So he started flushing the human remains down the toilet. Including the bones? Well, some of the bones he kept, but smaller bones like fingers and toes and ones that could be broken. Yeah, flush them down the toilet. Bitch, you can't even flush tampons down the toilet. (laughs) Why you think you can flush someone's stomach? Well, you can, but not for long. Because unfortunately, the building's plumbing was really old and it wasn't up to the challenge of disposed human beings. It became so backed up that the other residents noticed it, and they called a plumber. So on February 8th, 1983, a plumber named Michael Cratton was called to 23 Cranley Gardens, and the residents of the apartment building had been complaining of of the block drains for quite a while, and finally the superintendent was like, okay, I'll do something. So Cratton had been a plumber for quite a while, but in all of his years on the job, he had never seen anything like what he was about to find. I mean, I would imagine. <laughs> so when Cratton opened the drain cover at the side of the building, he found that it was indeed clogged. And he started pulling out the blockage. And he realized that this was not the usual like hair and napkins that would clog up a toilet. Instead, it was packed with a flesh-like substance and small broken bones. Then he hears behind him someone say, oh, it looks like someone's been flushing their Kentucky Fried Chicken. That was Dennis Nielsen who made that comment. Oh my god. But Cratton was looking at this mass and he was like, this is not chicken. It didn't look like chicken meat. It looked very human. And as it would turn out, (laughs) over the course of the ensuing investigation, that Michael Cratton had been horribly correct about what that mass was. The mass clogging up those drains was a congealed mass of human remains, which is quite possibly one of the most disgusting and disturbing and horrific things I have ever said out loud. Honestly, the word congealed is what does it for me. Like, that sets the image. (laughs) Sets congealed. Um, Uh Uh-huh. One of the horrifying things about this is he probably never would have been caught had he, you know, when he moved out of the garden property, they'd been like, okay, I guess I'm done. Mm-hmm. Because he was caught because he was flushing people down the toilet. And so I just wonder how many murderers are there that killed 10 people 
and then stop. I really don't think you want to open up that door. I mean, because I'm sure there are a lot more than we would ever like to imagine. Because what? One in three people has murdered. (laughs) No, I don't think it's that common. But isn't there like this? There's a number of how many active serial killers there are in like today's world. And it's in the thousands, I think. Do you mind looking that up while I talk about this? Oh, I'm already looking it up. Okay, so. Upon a very thorough investigation of the apartment building's pipes, the flesh was eventually traced to the attic flat, which was, as we know, Nielsen's apartment. So, horrifying. Uh, And even more horrifying, side note, I found the number. What is it? Uh, 2,000 in the U.S. And that's like... 2,000 active serial killers roam the streets today in the United States. Yeah. So, um, just think about that when you're trying to go to sleep tonight. You're welcome. Yay, lock your fucking doors. Lock your fucking doors. So the police had found the apartment where all the body parts were originating from. And the second that they stepped foot into the flat, they were immediately just hit with the aroma of rotting flesh and decay. I mean, that is an unmistakable smell. They knew right then and there that they were stepping into something. They asked Nielsen where the rest of the body was. And Nielsen calmly showed them the garbage bag of body parts that he kept in his wardrobe. The police continued searching the apartment, and there were body parts stashed all around, and this quickly evolved into them implicating Nielsen beyond a shadow of a doubt in several open murders. So you have to think about it. The police walk into this apartment, they've got tons of murder cases they've been working on, and it's like, boom, 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 there's one, there's one, there's one. There's... A lot. And obviously not in that moment. They know who these people are, but it gave them that next step in a ton of cases. And so the police took the bags, removed them from the wardrobe in the apartment, and they took them to Hornsey Mortuary. One of the bags was found to contain two dissected torsos, which means this must have been a really big bag. One of the torsos had been vertically dissected, and then they also found a shopping bag containing various internal organs. There was another bag that actually had a human skull, and it had almost all of the flesh off of it. And then there was also another dismembered head in that bag, a torso with arms attached, but hands missing. And both of the heads looked like they had been subjected to some type of really moist heat, so like some humidity. Nilsson was arrested and interviewed over the next 16 days for a total of 30 hours. And though he did admit to killing between 12 and 15 people, he claimed he didn't really know the exact number because, you know, he lost count. He'd been doing this so long. He was formally charged with six counts of murder and two attempted because at the time, that's all the police could really prove. Nilsson was adamant that he was uncertain why he killed. And he would just say, you know, I'm hoping you'll tell me that. Like, I don't know why I did it. When they asked him, like, what his motive was, he was like, I hope you I hope you know. Can you help me figure that out? He also said, and he was, again, adamant about this, that the decision to kill, it wasn't made until moments right before the act of murder. So it's like, even though he was literally doing this to everyone that he brought home, he said he didn't make that decision until they were there. Well, I mean, how many people... Did he invite home and just drink with? They fell asleep on his couch and then went home in the morning. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. He would typically, after he killed the victim, he would bathe their body, shave all of the hair off their torso. So it would, 
you know, be his physical ideal, what he appreciated in a body. He would then put makeup on them um, to cover up any obvious blemishes there may be. And he would usually dress the body in socks and underpants, and then he would drape them around him as if he was talking to them. So like slung their arm over his shoulder, just like they were having a conversation. Because again, he was someone that was seeking a long-term relationship, but also who fantasized about unconscious, dead, and very passive people. So it's like he was creating his own company. Next, the investigators asked him about those two heads that looked like they'd been exposed to some type of moist heat. And Nielsen said that he actually boiled the heads in a large cooking pot on the stove. So the internal organs, you know, the brain inside the head, the eyes, they would all eventually evaporate. And it removed the need to dispose of of those organs. So he just boiled them, boiled them so long until they were gone. And when he was questioned whether he had any remorse for these crimes, Nielsen replied, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. And he emphasized that he didn't take any pleasure in the act of killing, but that he worshipped the act of death. So dude is like seriously fucked up. He was taken to trial. It was... Obviously, as you can imagine, an extremely involved trial with a lot of testimony from psychologists, from both the prosecution and the defense. However, Nielsen was found guilty on all six counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum sentence of 25 years. He never filed an appeal, and this minimum term of 25 years imprisonment was actually replaced by a whole life tariff by home security Michael Howard in December 1994. So in the, you know, after he'd been in prison for a little while, they were like, actually, 25 years to life. No, it is a whole life. So you will be here until you die. And The ruling ensured, again, that he would never be released, and he accepted this. Like, he did not try to fight his punishment. He was like, okay. Um, He was officially a prisoner when he died. He passed away at York Hospital on May 12th, 2018. Oh, that's recent. Very recent. And he had actually just been taken to the hospital after complaining of some stomach pains, and he later suffered a blood clot as a result of surgery complications. One thing that's uh, pretty... Interesting. I found an article about his apartment on Melrose. So the one where he was putting the bodies under the floorboards and burning them in the gardens. Mm -hmm. So obviously, when Nielsen was arrested, they went back to every residence he had lived at to see what they could find. They ended up scoping the garden and finding little bits of bones. And that's how they ended up identifying some of those victims. But this house actually went for sale, I believe it was a couple years ago. A young couple bought the house because it was marked down at least 10 to 15% from all the other homes in the neighborhood, obviously because it's the murder house. And I read an article about this couple and they were like, yeah, we did a ton of research, but you know, they they had the whole house renovated. So it's all like new. And they're like, you know, this is a fantastic home. This is a fantastic neighborhood. We're fully aware of what happened here, but It's said and done. It's not happening now. And it really made me think, like, would knowing that the house... Because, like, with Gacy's house, they freaking demolished it. They were like, nope, gone. But, like, 
would it deter you, you think, from buying the house or not? I can't decide how I would feel. I'd have to be in that situation because buying a home nowadays is so hard. One of my friends, actually, the house that she and her husband live in, they bought. And it. the reason it went for sale is because there was a murder-suicide in the house. Like, I think it was a domestic violence issue where, like, the husband, he murdered his wife and then shot himself. Yeah. Like, that was disclosed to them, but they were like, honestly, it's kind of weird, but it's one of the only ways that we can afford a house. And also, wouldn't the best thing for this house be to infuse it with, like, the energy of a loving family? And positivity. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, honestly, that's fair. Totally. I mean, I... I don't know how much about, like, the energy stuff, I believe, but, like, I mean, if it's a good deal and... I know. You can't change the past, but you can change the future, so if one day this stops being the murder house and starts being, oh, the house with that little girl who last year she dressed up as a ladybug for Halloween, mm-hmm. I mean... I feel like that's doing a lot of good. It is. It's giving new life into the home. And also, it's not like you had to clean up the murder scene. Like, it's not like you bought the home with blood spatter all over the walls. And they're like, yeah, "Yeah, we've discounted it a bit. Because, I mean, you're going to have to pay to, like, clean that up and have the walls repainted. Like, that's not what's going on in the majority of these situations. I'm not going to say that's not not ever happened, but... Um, it's actually a biohazard and you can't sell a home with human remains oh, on it. I knew in that. It, including like blood and stuff. I know that again because of her buying her house. But I guess in the end, all I'm saying is that I would absolutely buy a murder house. And hey, everyone, come live with me in my haunted mansion. <laughs> yes. So that is the serial killer, Dennis Nielsen, Britain's Jeffrey Dahmer. And you can absolutely see a ton of the similarities. Although, as far as we know, Nielsen was not a cannibal. Like, he did boil the heads, but it was for disposal, not for a snack, like Dahmer. A snack. Why did you have to phrase it like that? (laughs) Well, I mean, because it was. I mean, I get it, but a snack. (laughs) He's, He's trying to pick between some apple slices, some popcorn, some face. You know. Which do I want? Do I want the the tongue and the grilled eyeballs, or am I just really feeling an orange right now? I don't know. Um, yeah, no. Dennis Nielsen is real messed up. So there's a book. It's called Killing for Company, and it's by Brian Masters. And he's written a lot of books about serial killers. He wrote one about Dahmer, but this one was from like 1994, 1995, and it has a lot of these really creepy eerie details and like the quote that i said earlier that dennis said i i think brian must have interviewed dennis to Mm. to get some of this information but if you're looking for like a really eerie read you can literally get this book for like two dollars on amazon paperback because i mean it's been around for a while so buy a used copy recycle a book uh if you want to hear more so yeah i think that definitely qualifies as an extremely creepy case congealed human all i'm gonna say uh yeah i mean i don't even know how to respond because my case is also very creepy and we're just it's a creep fest hi everyone this is blood and wine and i'm Brittany, and i'm tyler 
and we've partnered up with First Leaf, a monthly wine subscription service. With First Leaf, you take a quiz to determine your wine preferences, and based on your results, First Leaf sends you an intro box of six wines. Try all the wines and rate them, and First Leaf will use your ratings to recommend more wines for your curated club orders. If you happen to get one you don't like, you just let First Leaf know, and they will replace it. Your shipments of six bottles are all $15 a bottle, no matter what wine you get. You can also order additional boxes other than your curated ones in their online store. With our partnership, if you visit page.firstleaf.club slash bloodandwine and enter blood and wine at checkout, you get free shipping for a year. That's a savings of $120 if you're just getting one box a month, and even more if you order additional boxes. Again, that is page.firstleaf.club slash bloodandwine and the code bloodandwine at checkout. Bye! Bye. So, the case that I'm going to be doing to highlight our creepy murders topic is the case of the alphabet murders, also known as the double initial killings. Oh, I didn't know it was also known as that. This one's creepy. Really creepy. Yeah. So, before I get into it, the sources that I used, the book Alphabet Killer, The True Story of the Double Initial Murders by Cherry Farnsworth, Reddit, Wikipedia, and The Guardian. So, during the early 1970s, Rochester, New York was plagued by a series of crimes against preteen girls whose raped and brutalized remains would be found in the rural communities surrounding the city. Uh, side note, also, another warning. Trigger warning. Oh, yeah, if that uh, first, like, sentence wasn't, you know, warning enough, absolutely trigger warning for this case. For this whole episode, really. Literally, trigger warning. But due to the alliterative nature of the names in these killings, the press would sensationalize them as the alphabet murders or the double initial killings. And I'll get into kind of what the alliterations and all that are. So on the afternoon of November 16th, 1971, commuters who were leaving the city of Rochester were greeted with a very bizarre and terrifying sight on the breakdown lane of I-490 West. A dark-haired girl who was naked from the waist down was sprinting along the shoulder near an exit, waving her arms as if to, like, get attention to passing drivers. Ahead of her, a car was backing up slowly. (gasps) A man emerged and led this terrified preteen back to the vehicle by the arm. He turned back onto the highway and sped off. Of the 38 witnesses who saw this brief drama play out, none would report it. What? Until three days later. Not a single person was like, I should probably tell someone. Not a single person said anything until three days later. Y'all, when you see something like this, call 911. By then, by the time people said something, the lifeless body of Carmen Cologne had already been found. Oh my god. So Carmen Cologne lived in a Spanish-speaking household in one of Rochester's poorer neighborhoods. This 10-year-old was raised in two different worlds. The early years of her life were spent in her family's native Puerto Rico before moving to upstate New York, where she was largely raised by her grandparents. This experience was probably the source of some trauma for her, because she reportedly suffered from some pretty intense nightmares, and 
despite being a very smart child, she struggled to adapt to an English curriculum and she was placed in remedial classes. On the afternoon that she went missing, Carmen was last seen leaving a drugstore where she'd volunteered to pick up a prescription for her mother. Oh my god, she was just trying to help out. Yeah. An eyewitness account places her leaving the pharmacy and stepping into a waiting car, which her lack of reservation would later lead to speculation that whoever killed her knew her, and she knew them. Yeah. A full 48 hours later, two teenage boys found what they first thought was a mannequin by the side of the road near Churchville, New York. It's never a mannequin. So many people think that. It's never a mannequin. Closer examination revealed the bruised and strangled body of Carmen Cologne, naked from the waist down and covered in scratches. Poor baby. Her pants were found on a service road not far from the I-490 exit, where she had last been seen trying to escape the car, and evidence of sexual assault was apparent. As with most murders, police worked... Carmen Cologne's killing outward. They began with the immediate family and then spread their probes wider. But it didn't take long for them to zero in on Miguel Cologne, who was the common law husband of Carmen's mother. So Uncle Miguel, as he was known to Carmen and the family, was interviewed by police and he subsequently fled back to Puerto Rico. Miguel later committed suicide after a domestic violent incident, and he was never indicted or even charged in connection with Carmen's death. A known sex offender from Ohio named James Barber was also questioned in her murder, but nothing came out of that lead, and he soon left the area and was nowhere near Rochester when Wanda Walkovitz disappeared in the spring of 1973. Wanda, who was 11, was remembered by those who knew her as this precocious redhead with an impish smile and a quick wit that hid her tragic upbringing. After the sudden death of her father, Wanda's mother struggled to raise her and her two sisters, and as the oldest, Wanda became used to stepping up and helping out at home, especially with her youngest sister, Michelle. It was with these domestic responsibilities in mind that Wanda set out on the afternoon of April 2nd, 1973, to pick up a few groceries at the corner store near the house. You said she was 11? She's 11. Oh my gosh. She's 11, but she sounds like she's clearly insanely mature. Like, almost like a 14 or 15-year-old doing these things, helping out at home. Well, she she knows her mom's doing the best she can. And as the oldest, she's like... It's your responsibility. I can do what I can do. She feels it's her responsibility to help out. And and she's she has such, like, a kind heart that she's doing whatever she can. Yeah. So Wanda left the house at around 5.10 in the afternoon. And just before 8 p.m., her mom, Joyce called the police to report her missing. You know, it had been at this point three hours, groceries, and maybe maybe even on the way to groceries, she stopped by a friend's house, whatever. Three hours is too long. Something's up. But she didn't have to wait long to get the news. At 10.15 the next morning, police officers knocked on her door to 
tell her that a girl's body had been found at a rest stop in Webster. Joyce answered the door in tears because she'd already heard the news on a police scanner that she had before the police arrived. So she knew. The body of Wanda Valkovitz was discovered by a New York State trooper on patrol near the Irondequoit Bay rest area. Wanda was found fully dressed, but evidence of rape was also apparent on her. She'd been strangled with a ligature, but whatever the killer had been used to commit the murder must have been taken with them because it wasn't found at the scene. Yeah. An autopsy did reveal that she had eaten custard shortly before her death. And this was kind of noteworthy because it's not a food that she had at home or at school. And it's not something that she purchased at the grocery store. So someone gave so it to her or lured her with it. Yeah. Whoever her killer was must have given her this custard. Yeah. That is so sick like taking advantage of a young kid i mean it's literally like the horror things we talk about kidnapping with the white van like hey kid i've got some candy and it's like don't ever take candy from strangers this is exactly that absolutely so the investigation into wanda's murder led police to a trio of sex offenders an elderly man who'd been reported for trying to coerce kisses out of neighborhood girls an ex-con with a record of violence against young women, and an unidentified man with a history of sexual offenses who had supposedly chased Wanda and a friend, but none of these leads panned out. Even the guy who chased them, supposedly? Yeah, yeah. That's creepy. Oh yeah, a sex offender chasing a young girl and her friend? Yeah, no. An anonymous caller claimed to have seen a man force a young girl who matched Wanda's description into a light-colored Dodge Dart. And similar tips also surfaced, including one caller who claimed to have actually seen the body being disposed of at the rest stop. Two neighborhood girls also told police of a man in black driving a Ford LTD who tried to lure them into his vehicle the Saturday prior to Wanda's murder, and then another witness surfaced who saw a tattooed man in a green pinto with a crying girl that he swore was Wanda. Seems to be quite a few witnesses. And it's one of those things where I know witness testimony is not super accurate, but there seemed to be a lot in this. Unfortunately, again, none of these leads panned out. Damn it! None of them? None of them. Oh my god. You would hope that at least like a single one would take you at least one step forward. Yeah. I mean, with so many of these tips and possible witnesses and leads, you would hope that something would would click, something, you know, one of these would actually be, you know, able to lead somewhere, but it didn't. That's got to be one of the most heartbreaking things as an investigator, where you're like sifting through all of this information and there's like, oh, potential lead, potential lead, potential lead, and nothing goes anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, can you imagine something as heartbreaking as that? Because I don't think I really can. I don't think I can either. So the most promising break in Wanda's case came when a neighborhood man with a previous arrest for child endangerment was questioned for 12 hours. 
police were actually so confident that they announced an arrest was imminent. But after passing a polygraph, the suspect was released and the murder of Wanda Walkowitz went cold. So it was less than a year before another girl went missing from the streets of Rochester. This time it was Michelle Mainza who vanished while walking home from school on November 26, 1973, the eve of her 11th birthday. Although she was the same age as previous victims, Michelle was a lot more childlike. She was teased by her peers about her weight, and she was much more comfortable playing with younger children who tended to look up to her rather than put her down. She also had a selfless streak, and on the day that she disappeared, she was retracing her mother's steps and looking for her mom's purse that she'd lost the day before. Again, just trying to help out. Her body was found two days later, badly beaten, in Macedon, New York. And like Wanda, she'd been sexually assaulted, strangled, and then redressed. So she was found fully clothed as well. An autopsy would confirm that her killer fed her a hamburger. This time, however, there was a positive ID, and for the first time, there was a suspect. What? So one of Michelle's friends said that she saw her in the front seat of a beige car around the time she went missing. The driver of this car was driving recklessly and nearly caused an accident. Because of that, there were other witnesses. Later, a man came forward to tell police that he'd come across a beige car that was stopped on Route 350 near the town of Macedon. And believing that this vehicle was disabled, the man stopped to offer assistance. The driver moved forward to conceal the license plate of the car and, most notably, to block the would-be Samaritan from getting a good look at the girl that he had with him, who was a girl who matched Michelle's description. When the driver of this car curled a fist and raised it tensely, the guy who stopped to help, this Samaritan, got back into his car and drove away, but made a mental note of a partial plate number. Later, an account would emerge of an identical man bringing a cheeseburger to a crying girl, that the witness swore was Michelle at a fast food restaurant in the area. And if you'll remember, the autopsy said her last meal was a hamburger. hamburger. I remember. So the witness called police a few days later to excitedly report that he saw the driver of this beige sedan again, and this time he had a full plate number. This information led investigators to a petty criminal in Lyons, New York, He was an unemployed divorcee who lived with relatives. He was a good match for the sketch that was generated from eyewitness accounts in Michelle's investigation, but he claimed to have been home at the time of the murder, working the phones in search of a job. And phone records seem to confirm this, although he did live with relatives who could have been making these calls. But nevertheless, he passed a polygraph test and was released, and his name was never made available to the public. 
Because he passed the polygraph test, and, like, at the time, mm-hmm. that was the thing. Even though, you know how easy it is to fail one of those? Oh, or yeah. Or pass it. You just have to be, like, calm. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, it, polygraph tests, there's a reason that they're rarely admissible as evidence nowadays and more used to convince people to confess, which is also super fucked up. But It's a scare tactic now. Yeah. It, because people, like, I think the majority of the public doesn't know how unreliable that evidence is. I think it, yeah. there's just this notion that's been around for so long that a polygraph test is like the, oh, shit, if I fail, it totally means I'm guilty. And so even innocent people are worried about taking a polygraph test because they're going to fail. And sometimes they do because it's unreliable. Yeah. One thing I did want to note at this point is... One of the reasons why these murders are known as the double initial killings or the alphabet murders are because of the names of the victims and where they were found. All of them start with the same letter. So Carmen Cologne, her body was found in Churchville. Wanda Walkovitz was found in Webster. And Michelle Mainza was found in Macedon. You know, I really wonder the investigator that made that connection that was like, wait, 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 look at this. Because that's yeah. that's not a coincidence. No, absolutely not. The way that that was consistent among all three of them, that was planned. It's so creepy. It's creepy. It's planned, it's planned and it's creepy as fuck. Yes. And I have to wonder if there was a Rachel Robinson who disappeared in Rochester who was never found. Yeah. Or how many other young girls disappeared or were murdered in the area and the connection hasn't been made yet. I know. Or is it all a coincidence? I don't think it is. I really don't I, I don't, think it is. Especially with what I'm about to get into, I don't, I cannot think it is, but these so-called alphabet murders went cold shortly after Michelle's murder. Although leads continued to surface and several high-profile suspects were investigated, they were cleared. Miguel Colon remained on police radar until his suicide, and another suspect, a firefighter and reputed serial rapist named James Termini, also committed suicide before his arrest on sexual battery charges. But he was cleared via DNA in 2007. So... Wasn't him. He was a suspect, but it wasn't him. One-time Rochester resident, Kenneth Bianchi, who went on to terrorize Los Angeles with his cousin, Angelo Buono, also known as the Hillside Stranglers... Oh, that's right! So he's perhaps the most high-profile person of interest in these killings. Bianchi would bring suspicion on himself after writing to a girlfriend that he left New York specifically because he was a suspect in the murders. But there's not really any evidence that Bianchi ever killed before linking up with Buono and the only murders that he committed on his own were linked to him and solved very quickly. The double initial killings, or the alphabet murders, did return to headlines in April of 2010, when a serial killer with ties to Rochester named Joseph Nasso 
was arrested in California. This is more recent than I realized. This came back. So Officer Wesley Jackson, who had been checking in on Nassau just to make sure that he didn't violate his probation after a previous grocery store theft, made a pretty strange discovery in his house. Officer Jackson began searching, you know, he came to by to just do like a search of the house, because that's part of the probation. So he began with the bedrooms. He searched through the dresser drawers and saw they were packed with women's clothing, which seemed odd because there's no signs of anyone else living in this house. Across the room, he spotted a pair of mannequin legs that were turned upside down and fitted with nylon stockings. That's weird. Nasso said that he wore women's pantyhose because of a skin condition on his leg, but the officer noted that he was at that time just wearing socks. So, okay. So he lied while wearing just socks. Yeah. You know, maybe it's something that he does it at night, but... Like, not an all-time thing, but real weird excuse. A second bedroom turned up scores of pictures of women naked or dressed only in stockings and high heels. And to the officer, some of these women in the pictures look to be unconscious or even perhaps dead. Oh my god. Nasso later said that these photos were just taken at a time when men were men and women were women. I'm sorry, which, what? Uh, oh, I know. I'm like, so even if these people, even if the women in the pictures are... 100% conscious and alive. Fuck you. Anyone who says men are men and women are women, you're a trash garbage human being and I hate you. Literally, fuck you. That is yeah. so unacceptable that there are no two other words I could pair together because that is so messed up and I hate that more than anything. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. That is such a generalization, and that's just attacking the sexes for who they are, and it's not even accurate. Mm -hmm. That it is so No, it's fucking garbage. So in the midst of all this clutter, there laid a single sheet of paper with a handwritten list of numbers that numbered up to ten, and next to each was the word girl or lady and a location. Mm. When asked about it, Nasso blustered. He was like, oh, it's just old girlfriends or models for his photo shoots because he'd previously been a photographer. Hundreds more pictures of naked women who police estimated ranged in age from 20 to 80 laid about what Nasso called his art studio. Another clutch was found in the living room and some of the women appeared to be posing willingly. Others looked knocked out or worse. Some were bound with cord. One picture showed a man whose face was turned away from the camera, appearing to rape an unconscious woman. Oh my god. The officer also spotted boxes of bullets near a dresser, which was finally, like, that was enough to arrest Nasso for breach of his probation, while he continued his search for what he assumed would be a weapon hidden somewhere in the house. Days later, police found a small stash of guns behind a fridge in the garage. But by then, detectives were not talking about just his probation violations anymore. 
a group of officers had descended to search every corner of his house. One of them picked up the aluminum clipboard that was sitting on the dining room table. He leafed through it and was increasingly shocked. The entries amounted to a journal of terror. One of them said, Girl in North Buffalo Woods. She was real pretty. Front seat of my car. Had to knock her out first. 1958. Another recorded at about the same time said, Salina, Kansas. Girl I followed and met at Fred Astaire Dance Studio. She was gorgeous. Great legs and nylons heels. Had to rape her in my car on a cold wintry night. I'm sorry. Snowstorm. I'm sorry. Had to rape her. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. This guy's a monster. He's a fucking monster. And a page after page of what police would call the rape diary <gasps> was filled with similar records of NASA's assaults on women. This diary would come to form a central part of the case against him. But there was more. The search also turned up a separate stash of notebooks written years later. If anything, they were even more horrific, with graphic descriptions of bondage, torture, and murder. <gasps> oh my god. Some were very clearly apparent accounts of past crimes. Others read more as instruction manuals for the carefully planned and prolonged deaths of individually named women that had yet to be captured. I'm sorry, did this guy think he was some type of author or poet? Like, making sure to recount the things that he did? Because, yeah. like, oh, maybe one day this will make a great story. Or, or Ethan, just the, I want to leave my legacy. Like, this is so sick. So eventually he was charged with the murders of four women in California. Carmen Cologne, who, not to be confused with Carmen from earlier in the story, but someone with the exact same name. It was a different, the same name, different person? Same name, different person. Oh my god. Pamela Parsons, Roxine Rogash, and Tracy Tafoya. Also, all women who have alliteration names. With that, you know, with him being charged and convicted on these. So investigators thought that they had finally found their guy after more than 40 years since, you know, just like the murders in Rochester, four of his victims had those double initials. And NASA had also lived in Rochester for a long time. During the 70s. I feel like there's a butt coming. Despite some claims of evidence of this Buffalo area rape in his journal, Nasso couldn't be linked to the earlier murders. DNA proved it wasn't him. That breaks my heart because it was what seems like... Well, I actually have two things to say. It breaks my heart because it's what seemed like a perfect fit, but also... This is evidence that just because something seems like it could be doesn't mean it is. And that sucks. It sucks. It does because every single thing would point to the fact that... That he is him. It was him. Yeah. 
it it was him. He lived in Rochester. He brutalized women. He murdered women with alliteration names back in California and was convicted of that. But it wasn't him in New York. The DNA proved it wasn't him. Well, and the other thing is that this shows how unfortunately easy it is to wrongfully convict someone. Because literally yeah. almost all the evidence was against this guy, but it wasn't him. I mean, had he been caught in 1980 before DNA evidence was a thing. It would have been him. There's no part of me that thinks he wouldn't have been accused or he wouldn't have been convicted of the murders in Rochester. Same. But as of today, the identity of the alphabet killer remains unknown. All right. Well, that was crazy. Super, super creepy. And I think it's time to jump into postmortem. I agree. So I'm going to take a lead in this postmortem because this episode definitely panned out to everything I imagined it would with being creepy murders. But (laughs) yeah, honestly, when you told me the topic initially, I was like, you know, okay, you know, this is we're going to be able to find some creepy cases. Maybe I'll find a case that like you know, Stephen King based it off of, or some kind of clown murder, you know, something like that kind of creepy. But no, then you start looking at it and it's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh Oh my God, that's creepy. That's creepy. Yeah. The real creepy things are this real as shit shit. Yeah. But I will say, as far as this episode is concerned, I do think I presented the creepiest case because Uh, uh, Dennis Nielsen is... One in two, because Dahmer. So, like, literally, like, these two freaking bastards are so horrific in the things that they did. And the fact that Nielsen hid people under his floorboard, he, you know, lured them into his home. He seemed like this nice guy. And honestly, the fact that his background seems so normal, aside from a couple of weird, like, things... But he seemed normal, and it's just like he went to the complete opposite. He tortured and killed and dismembered these bodies and then completely disrespected them by just like everything he did, hiding them, chopping them up, burning them. He made them so inhuman with everything that he did to them that... It's just, I I don't know, it's some of the worst of the worst. This was one of the cases that I had the most difficult time getting through because every sentence I read was worse and worse and worse. I completely agree. Your case, mine was creepy and horrifying and was the brutal sexual assault and murder of three young girls. I mean, yours was absolutely horrific. It's incomprehensible. It is. How horrifying that is. But just how graphic your case was, the level of detail, and the level of how much he just didn't care. He didn't. I mean, he bagged up these people as if they were like, winter sweaters that he was putting in his closet for the summer yeah like there there was no aspect of it that he showed any actual care for these people it's horrifying Uh uh-huh it's disgusting so i 
completely agree with you. You definitely had the creepier case, the more disturbing case, the more intense case, however you want to put it. I mean, you brought the British Jeffrey Dahmer. I did. So I will be picking the topic for the next episode. And I have something in mind already that um, it's going to be big. Let's just say it's going to be big. (laughs) I mean, that's all we bring now. Big guns. All we do. That's true. All we do. That's true. So um, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning in, listening to us. I hope y'all enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us those five stars if you enjoyed it. That really helps us get up in the rankings and helps more listeners find us. Yes. And as long as you're spreading the word, be sure to like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can go there and find all of the wines that we review, look at the cases that we cover. You can find all of the information and also just like chat with us and engage with us. So be sure to check us out on social. Also, one thing I do want to note, make sure to check out our merch store at our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. So we have different deals and promotions going on all the time. You can find those different deals, whatever promotion is happening at, you know, when you're looking to shop, you can find that at the top of the store page on our website. So make sure to check it out. Get yourself a t-shirt, get yourself a tote bag or a hat or a dog bandana and don't forget about the crop top that i'm absolutely obsessed with it's like my favorite favorite shirt ever seriously honestly i just i wish i had the body of like will smith circa 1994 i mean who doesn't and i would wear crop tops too (laughs) because that's one of my favorite looks is like the late 80s early 90s guys in crop tops that have abs it looks good. I'm gay. I'm allowed to do fashion things Totally. Like that. Absolutely. You are. Except I'm tubby, so <laughs> instead I'm going to wear dark Stop. clothes. Stop. You are beautiful in every part of who you are. Don't ever think otherwise. Oh, thank you. And with that note of positivity, which was much needed in this episode, yeah. uh, this is... First off, listen to what Brittany says, because it applies to all of you. But this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.